Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, from injury to insult, careless selfie takers wreaked havoc over the weekend with one causing a serious crash at the Tour de France while another got called out by country singer Miranda Lambert who paused a Vegas concert mid-song to tell fans to stop with the selfies. So what's with our lack of so-called selfie awareness and how do you put an end to it? The Governor General's spending on international trips is under the microscope again after it was revealed a four-day trip to Iceland by Mary Simon last fall cost nearly $300,000, including, can you imagine, $70,000 on limousine services alone. So why does Rideau Hall keep running into these very same problems? And who needs to put a lid on the spending? We find out. Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray joins us to talk about Russia suspending a program that allowed Ukraine to export grain through the Black Sea to parts of the world that need it the most, as Moscow once again faces accusations of weaponizing food for its own ends in this war. We find out what the right reaction should be and how to make sure those already facing hunger or the threat of it aren't left to suffer the consequences. But first, the deaths of two people helping in the vast effort to fight wildfires in BC, in the Northwest Territories and elsewhere is a reminder of how dangerous it can be in a record-setting wildfire season. The military has now arrived in BC to help. So do those on the front lines have the support they need and the training they need? We find out. Speaking of, um, authorities here in BC have had to tell people to stop pulling over on the side of the road to take pictures of wildfires, probably selfies in there as well, because it's jamming up traffic and preventing people from getting to where they need to go, including uh, emergency responders and so forth. So uh, speaking of self-awareness, there's another one for you. Um, And that comes as Canada's record-breaking wildfire season has now seen 100,000 square kilometers of land burned, um, with many still burning out of control across the entire country. The situation's been very dire in BC. More than 370 wildfires are burning in this province. As we speak, air quality alerts uh, from wildfire smoke cover a large part of the province right now, so much so that the Canadian Armed Forces has sent in troops. The first ones have arrived to help uh, firefighters with all that they need to tackle. Soldiers, helicopters, a Hercules plane is poised for deployment as well. Uh, The forces today said in a statement that a reconnaissance team is on the ground in Prince George in central BC, working with local authorities, including the BC Wildfire Service, uh, to come up with strategies. Um, They've come from Canadian Forces Base Edmonton, are being deployed to Burns Lake and Vanderhoof, in those areas at least, in central BC, where there are fires burning. Uh, the Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth, here says the arrival of the armed forces and equipment uh, really will help uh, the province's wildfire fight um, and is welcomed by firefighters in their communities. Just to remind you that recent data has prompted the feds and BC's Premier David Eby to say that Canada and BC are on track to record their worst wildfire season in 100 years. The arrival of the soldiers is much needed relief for those who've been fighting these fires on the front lines for weeks now. We're still really early in the fire season, um, and I worry about, you know, first responders, um, our firefighters just becoming incredibly exhausted. And so when federal assistance like this comes in, it's it's a welcome thing, in, in my opinion, because it just gives an opportunity for firefighters to have a break. 
Meantime, the toll of fighting wildfires raging in all parts of the country was made very clear over the weekend when a firefighter died while fighting a wildfire near his home community in the Northwest Territories. And that was the second time in just a few days that a Canadian firefighter had been killed on the job during this wildfire season. Uh, That death comes after 19-year-old Devin Gale. She was killed by a falling tree Thursday in British Columbia. Well, joining me now is Bruce Blackwell. He's owner of BA Blackwell & Associates. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much. Good evening, Ben. The size of this challenge, I mean, it's, it's been hard. I imagine it's hard in your situation to overstate just how challenging a year it's been with so many major wildfires burning all at once and just not enough resources really to have them. You know, people are, people are obviously very tired at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, to have had the drought that we've had across the whole country, um, not just in isolated parts of the country, um, has demonstrated that, you know, resources aren't, aren't probably what they need to be in these circumstances. And, and many of us in the wildfire business have talked about a Canada-wide um, situation where every province was burning because, you know, historically through um, the Canadian, Canadian Interagency Fire Control Group, we, uh, we share resources between provinces. We bring resources in from out of province. And, and that, you know, typically... Uh, until this year, has been an adequate way of dealing with fire. You know, obviously 2021 was a challenge, 2018 was a challenge, but this is the largest challenge that we've seen in British Columbia and, and across the country. What kind of, I mean, you know this stuff firsthand. What kind of strain does it mean? What kind of hours are we talking about here for those on the front line? Because one would think they could do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week if, if, the, if they had. I mean, that's what the response demands, right, to some extent? Well, I, I mean, from my experience, it was a long time ago. Uh, you wake up to the sound of helicopters, typically outside a fire camp, that start the activities early in the morning, um, and, and you go, you do go long days. But there is work safe uh, regulations that require that you only work a certain number of days and a certain amount of hours in any given day. So you know, workers do get the the rest, but you know, normally fire bus historically have you know lasted three three to four weeks but in the last 20 years we're seeing that the fire season is expanding and and this one looks like you know we we have forecasts now that aren't seeing any rain until the fall so we we may have five five long months of of big fire activity here in british columbia we we still haven't seen you know activity in in the in the kootenays although tonight we've got something going in cranbrook and we haven't seen a lot of activity down in the okanagan so you know, if the whole province yeah. starts burning, we, we, we could be in a much a much worse position than we are tonight. Yeah, and that's just BC, right? I mean, there's still fires burning yeah. in Quebec. We I mean, we know. I mean, Alberta still has fires. It's been it's just been that kind of year. Where it, when resources are that strained. I mean, I, I only know this anecdotally because my, my dad in, in Quebec has someone who does some lawn work for him. He's a volunteer firefighter. And he just wrote him a note and said, listen, I've been called to northern Quebec for a month. You know, I got to go. I'm gone. And it just feels like they're just pulling resources in from absolutely everywhere right now. Well, and that's really the only option that's available to to organizations. You've got to find, you know, resources wherever you can um, that can contribute. And, you know, there's lots of, you know, highly trained, highly skilled people involved in this. But you, you also have, you know, more technical labor jobs looking after fires that are controlled. Once the fire starts burning... And the bigger they get, the more resources they, they suck in because, 
not only do you, you have to put the fire out, but you have to follow up all through the rest of the fire season that it doesn't continue to burn. So the more fires you have, the more resources trail behind the main firefighting battle and the more you use up aviation resources and, and the more you, you strain the whole system. So it's, it's, it's a very challenging circumstance. Yeah, and we've been reminded uh, over the past four days or so just how, how that there, there can be tragedy involved as well. We had the death here in BC of the 19-year-old. We don't know much about what happened in the Northwest Territories, but, you know, people losing their lives in this fight. Yeah, I mean, these fires, uh, there's so many of them. They're so large, and their fire behavior is very challenging. I mean, we, we rank fires from one to, to, to rank six, and many of these big fires are ranked five, ranked six. They're, they're, they're very challenging fires. So, you know, if you're thinking about firefighter safety, you're, you're really worried about one entrapment. The, the firefighter gets entrapped in the fire uh, through, through fire embers going ahead of the, where they are, and that traps them in the fire. Or, as you, as you heard in Revelstoke, you know, trees um, are not all stable. You know, we know that trees blow over. We know that trees have defects. Um, and when these fires and the winds together combine, some of these trees can come crashing down. Um, and, you know, it, you can't predict that. You don't know where the defect is. You don't know how the fires affected the defect. Maybe it compromises the tree more. I, I, I know it's documented that, you know, you, you have some of these big fires and, and trees are uprooted, pulled into the, the column, the fire column, the smoke column, and they're transported distances of kilometers. And then they come crashing down to the ground. So there, there are some large hazards. But on the other hand, you have to look at, at, at you know, in B.C. And, and Alberta for that much. I'm not, I'm not so aware of eastern Canada. But, you know, we, we have a very good record of safety on, on fires. I mean, we, we really, the fatalities of the past are, are related to aviation and not people on the ground. And that's because... We're not as aggressive on the ground as compared to, say, the U.S., where, where it's, it's, it's more militaristic. We tend to pull firefighters away from the fire in dangerous situations. Um, we follow the warnings. And I, 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 to be honest, it, it's, 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 it's a shock and, and it's a tragedy that we've lost these two folks who, who were very dedicated to their job, I'm certain. Bruce, when we look at some of what we could do here, I mean, I, I, was, I spoke to a wildfire fighter earlier this year who said that, you know, in Alberta, for instance, they've reduced the season, right? They'd actually, you know, they, they don't bring people, they don't keep people on over the, over the, uh, the off season anymore. Uh, so, you know, it's led to some people sort of finding new work in other places and that we're sort of scaling down when we should be scaling up. But um, what might that look like? How do we stay prepared when every fire season is a little bit different and none as bad as this one, obviously? Well, I, I think, you know, you can throw endless resources at these large fires and not really achieve a whole lot other than getting people out of the way of them. And, and really, I think the focus is our landscapes have changed because we've been so successful at putting out fires for the last 100 years that we need to really focus on modifying the landscape outside of the fire season, using fire, using mechanical treatments, um, we just have too much fuel on our landscapes. And, yeah, we've, we're, we're, we have periods of drought, but the intensity of these fires are being fueled by the amount of fuel. So where we have values at risk, communities, infrastructure, and other important values like timber supply, we need to think about doing mitigation work to protect those values, those values at risk, 
so that we reduce the challenges to suppression forces and to human public safety and, and, um, and, and you know, important values to, to people. Right. You raise a good point because, I mean, I've heard lots of talk about setting up a national fire service, for instance, but unless that, that was very much focused on mitigation as opposed to fighting the actual fires, you're right, it probably wouldn't do a whole lot of good. We're talking about huge, huge amounts of land here. Right, exactly. So, so I, what, what my focus on in, in this business is really trying to consolidate where the risk is and mitigating that risk to limit the damages to valuable resources. And, and you know what, when you really look at the landscape, you can stratify it down to about, you know, 15 to 20%. That's very important that, that we have to do good work to mitigate some of these big fires ahead of them happening. And unless we start focusing on that type of approach, uh, we're going to be hard pressed. We're going to see more and more of these fires. And in British Columbia, the, the BC Wildfire Service has said there's 40 million hectares of high-risk fuels across the landscape. Well, that's an ex- extensive area, and we we can't afford, nor do we have the resources to treat it all. So we have to be very strategic in trying to mitigate this fuel problem. Has that been a problem in the past? Have we been? It feels like there were certainly enough warnings in the past decade, huge fires that would have been wake-up calls to the to everyone involved. Have we not been quick enough to recognize the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of perfect storm that a summer like this one or a spring and summer like this one might bring? Well, I, I, I honestly, I mean, I've been in this business for thirty-five years, and since two thousand and three, when we had the Colon Okanagan Mountain Park fire, things have just continued to get worse. And I honestly don't know. I'm, I, I continue to hope that every time we have a, a review, the Abbott Chapman, the Filman report, that people are going to understand how significant this problem is. And we're actually going to dedicate the right resources to it. And we're going to get everybody on board. But um, to date, we continue to struggle. Um, there, there's different silos of, of activity going on in the landscape. And they all need to be harnessed together collectively to make an impact on this problem. Government spending money, there's big programs that have been allocated to this, but we're not all pulling in the same direction. And uh, there was a recent uh, Forest Practices Board report that basically said we need cabinet to take the reins and direct across ministries a response to this problem. And I, and I, I, I think that's the only solution that's really going to put us in a position where we can reduce um, the impacts of the kind of fires we've seen this year. I suspect that would be the same in every province, right? At least every province that's been dealing with this problem this summer. Yeah, yes. And, and you know what? All of the, uh, the, the fuels alone suggest if we get these kind of climatic conditions, we're going to see worse conditions. So um, we, we, we need to think strategically and we need to act as quickly as because time's running out. I mean, we're burning, you know, 10 million hectares this year. Um, and, and, and we're having impacts across society, whether that's health impacts, carbon and atmospheric impacts, water quality, uh, home loss. These, these impacts, when you look at them, uh, if you take the dollars that are spent on suppression, the multiplier on other um, parts of society are anywhere up to 30 times what we spend on, uh, what we spend on putting out fires. So the, the, the financial and economic losses here are substantial. And now it's a prevention. Bruce Blackwell, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate your time. Well, over the weekend, uh, Canada closed applications for a temporary emergency visa offered to Ukrainians fleeing 
uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the program was launched after the invasion, uh, more than 500 days ago now, uh, as millions of people fled the country. The visa was available to an unlimited number of Ukrainians. It allowed them to work and study in this country for three years while they figure out their next steps. Those who come to Canada using the emergency visa aren't given refugee status, keep in mind. They're instead considered temporary residents. Now, under the uh, program launched in March of 2022, there people were able to uh, live and work here, as I mentioned, and they benefited from a variety of measures meant to speed up the visa process. Really, it was trying to get people who wanted to come to Canada here quicker if they, in any way possible. Uh, roughly 165,000 Ukrainians have come to this country using that program. That's about 21% of the 800,000 emergency visas granted. So a lot of people uh, applied for them, got them, and then haven't come yet. That's according to the government. They got about 1.1 million applications total. Um, of course, the promise of refuge is still needed. Ihor uh, Mikulchishin, Executive Director of the Ukrainian Can Canadian Congress, had this to say. And we, we're seeing the federal government uh, continue to make some moves to allow people in. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the longer the war goes, the more uh, people will be needing this kind of assistance. Uh, we, we do uh, want a scenario where the war ends and where peace returns and people have options for rebuilding their lives. Now, as that one program came to an end over the weekend, the federal government did launch a new immigration program. They've been talking about it for quite a while, so it's not clear if they were launching it or just saying it's coming in later this year in October. Uh, but it would be a new immigration program for Ukrainians fleeing their country, allowing those already here with family to receive permanent resident status. Well, to clear up some of this, because it gets a bit confusing after a while, is Joel Sandaluk. He's an immigration lawyer with Maman Sandaluk and Kingwell. Uh, uh, Joel, thank you so much. Welcome back. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe we could walk through this a little bit. This this program that had been in place since March of 2022 did indeed come to an end uh, over the weekend, but not not an end as in no one can come back in the country. If you've already received your 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 permission, your visa, in other words, you can come in, right? Right. They're not accepting any new applications, but there are still, as you said, hundreds of thousands of visas that have been issued and are waiting to be used if the if the holders choose to. This, this felt like something that we hadn't seen before, at least not at this scale. Uh, how successful has it been both in, in practice and, and in rollout? It's actually gone very smoothly. Uh, what the government showed in, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine is that we were able to move, uh, approve large numbers of people, uh, give them the ability to come to Canada, give them the immediate ability to work, and allow them to be integrated into Canadian society in a way that we haven't with any other group of refugees before. And ironically, we did it just at, just like treating them as refugees, or not, just by not treating them as refugees, I should say. The only real analogous program to this was something that we did for um, Albanians coming from Kosovo in the 1990s, where it was obviously, you know, before the internet, and we couldn't do the electronic travel authorities that they do now. But what they were doing is they were issuing temporary resident permits to those people when they came to Canada, which then enabled them to apply for permanent status after they'd been residing here for a couple of years. This way, it's uh, similar but different in the sense that it's a unique program that's designed specifically for Ukrainians in this circumstance. Yeah, one would think that could, in fact, be a recipe for disaster, right? Something rolled out pretty quickly in a time of crisis with big numbers. Uh, what do you, what, why did it work so well and what can we learn from it? Well, it's, I think perhaps one of the reasons that it works so well is that Canada itself has a very large Ukrainian diaspora. Uh, there are a lot of Ukrainian community centers, churches, 
languishes, language facilities. And it made this particular group of immigrants relatively easy to, uh, you know, to help to absorb and to integrate into Canadian society and would have been, you know, perhaps different, you know, when we were dealing with, for example, Syrian refugees or Afghan refugees uh, that may have facilitated their integration to some degree. But, um, you know, beyond that, it's really hard to say. I think what the government did in this case is they focused their resources on dealing with immigrants after they arrived here by giving more money to community organizations, to settlement services and things like that in order to, get kids into school, get people into homes and into jobs as quickly as they could. I know, I know you might not know this, um, or we, it, it, you know, I think, I think we've heard about this firsthand over the last uh, 18 months or so, uh, but this was a lot of the success of this was down to individual organizations going above and beyond the call of duty to make sure that those arriving here uh, arrive, were given a chance to succeed. That's true. Uh, there were a lot of community organizations and also individual employers who stepped up and created opportunities for, you know, Ukrainians who were arriving to come and work at restaurants, grocery stores, other small businesses. And what they did is a lot of communities really came together in a pretty remarkable way. So that's definitely part of it. One of the things that makes Canada unique in this way is that Canadians, by and large, have a much more positive uh, impression of immigrants and refugees in other countries around the world. And a lot of people really saw this as an opportunity to do the right thing for people who were really in in very def- desperate situations. And, you know, when you're dealing with uh, families, children in particular, who've experienced the trauma of leaving their homes or their pets, their family members, in many cases, their parents, their fathers, um, it was a lot to deal with. And a lot of organizations stepped up. A lot of people uh, we're able to get uh, get trained, get fed, get uh, you know get integrated in a way that I don't know that there's ever been an equivalent in Canadian uh, in recent Canadian history. Was it the right time then to put a put a stop to it? In other words, I know, I know there's a huge number of people who have visas who haven't come. Uh, I imagine we were looking at accommodating those if they decide to. But was it you know the war is still going on? Obviously, was it the right time uh, to put an end to it? Do you think? My understanding is that the number of applications that were then be that were now being made had slowed considerably, and I think there was a sense that the program had essentially absorbed the people or had issued visas to the people who truly needed them and who were truly interested in coming. And I think what the sense was that it was time for essentially a new phase of the program. Uh, the, you know, the reality is of the eight hundred thousand odd people who were issued visas the majority of them are probably never going to come to Canada. A lot of those people were issued visas precisely because they were issued so quickly. Those people had other options. Some of them stayed in Ukraine. Some of them settled in nearby countries like Poland or Germany. And, you know, the program isn't really necessary in the way that it was immediately after the invasion. So it's not necessarily problematic. I think what is happening, though, is there is a real need to transition to a new phase, which is to give people permanent status in Canada. Now, the interesting thing about that permanent status in Canada is it'll allow people eventually to re- reunite with their family members who may have let, stayed behind in Ukraine. So, for example, uh, men who are military age who weren't permitted to leave the country uh, or other family members who remained in different countries while they're trying to you know, sort of rebuild their lives or potentially move back to move back to Ukraine. This way, it gives people a little bit of stability. And, you know, interestingly, as a lawyer, we've had very few calls. And I don't think 
really any clients from Ukraine who were dealing with the situation because what was happening was the program was designed, it was so open, it was so transparent, so easy to use. Nobody needed a lawyer. Nobody needed to, to fight or struggle to get here. And instead, what happened was people were able to focus on what was really important, which was, you know, providing services and care for the people who needed it. So, you know, the reality that, you know, would there still be more people who were interested in coming? My suspicion is I think people who were interested probably would have signed up by now. They still have until March 2024 to actually act on their visas to come to Canada. But, you know, my guess is that many of the people who are going to be availing themselves of the permanent resident program are already here and are already, you know, sort of getting ready to uh, to make that application. That is remarkable that so few needed to turn to even to, to um, immigration lawyers, even for some cursory advice, because normally it is a very and I know this from uh, from permanent residence applications. And so nobody, normally it is a pretty thorny thing to navigate and takes time and it's you know you kind of left in the dark for a while this one in that sense sort of got rid of all the hurdles that we've seen in other cases it was i i can't think of another immigration program that cut through red tape like this it's honestly just extraordinary the permanent residence program i think will be a little bit more involved because things like background checks medical examinations screenings tend to just be you know, a little bit more involved, they tend to take a little bit more time. But if the first part of this program is any, any indication, my suspicion is there will be very little work for lawyers. And the truth is, that's really for the best. I mean, this isn't the sort of thing where, you know, it should be a make-work project for lawyers. This should really be about bringing people to Canada, bringing them to safety and helping them get set up. Joel Sandaluk is an immigration lawyer with Maman Sandaluk and King Wellies with us this half hour. We're talking about Canada ending a uh, temporary emergency visa program that was being offered to Ukrainians fleeing uh, Russia's invasion of their homeland that began back in March of uh, 2022. It's been enormously successful. About 1.1 million applicants, 800,000 people got the visas. Only about uh, a fraction of that actually used them. But a lot of people have come to this country, about 166,000 people. We've been talking about what a success it was because, you know, often the these things done quickly. Um, sometimes can, it can be a recipe for disaster. In this case, it was not. They have, though, in, in fact, moved on. I mean, there's been an announcement of another program coming in probably later in the year, which would be a new program for Ukrainians fleeing, and it would be to allow them to uh, those in Canada with family to receive permanent resident status. Uh, Joel, this seems you were mentioning the, the logical next step. This is to take those who've come here and want to stay here and now sort of say, OK, if you're here and you want to stay, we're going to stop. This is no longer the emergency that it was necessarily, you know, more than 500 days ago. We're now going to try and find a path to to more permanent residents here for those who want to stay. That's right. That's, uh, you know, a lot of the people who came here, they've settled down. They've been here now for months. And, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that they would want to have a little bit of stability. They wouldn't want to have to, you know, constantly be renewing their status or relying on temporary services. And this, you know, basically gives them the opportunity to resettle themselves here. And, you know, from a national perspective, from a national interest perspective, you know, Canada has had a severe labor shortage, especially in different parts of the country where a lot of these people have settled down. And what it does is it fulfills a, a very meaningful, very real short-term labor need in, you know, small shops, bakeries, restaurants, uh, what have you. And so, you know, in a way it, it serves both those individuals' interests, but also serves the national interest in, you know, gaining more people to fulfill the, to, you know, fill the requirements of the job market.
And you also mentioned earlier that for those who do want to build a home here, because I know a lot of people that we spoke to over the past uh, many months have said, you know, when things clear up at home, they'd like to go back, which is always a possibility. Uh, But for those who decide to make Canada their home, this also allows them to reunite, right? This allows them perhaps to bring over a parent if necessary or a spouse of that person. And, you know, for men who haven't been able to leave the country, it allows them to start building a life here. That's right. I mean, what it does essentially is it gives them the option. So, you know, obviously Canada is not a prison. I mean, if they if they come here, they're given the option to stay. They can choose to stay. Um, and, you know, when Ukraine is ready to rebuild, when, you know, there's uh, infrastructures being restored or when people's lives are getting back on their feet in Ukraine, many of them may choose to return to that country. And this, this program will allow them to do that if they want to. It'll also allow them, if they choose to, to remain in Canada. You know, over the years, or sorry, I should say over the months, I have had a chance to speak to a number of people from Ukraine, people who are, you know, have come to Canada, have started taking steps to be able to get certified in their professions in this country, uh, some people who work in healthcare, some people who work in uh, construction or what have you. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that Canada can gain from this. In time, uh, many of them may choose to go back, but I think one of the realities is that the longer people stay, the longer the situation remains in Ukraine, the more likely they are going to want to be able to remain in Canada on the much longer term, especially when you consider you know, parents with young children, people who are going to school, uh, who've already had a significant disruption to their lives. A lot of parents wouldn't want to impose a, you know, a further disruption, which is going back to a country that's you know, been through a very traumatic experience. Well, walking away from this one, as we look at uh, the emergency program wrapping up, you get the impression that, I mean, having dealt, of course, with issues with Syrian uh, Syrians who wanted to come to Canada, with Afghans who wanted to come to Canada, I know the challenges there are different, uh, but it feels like there are things we could take away from this experience the last 500 or so days and use them in the future in, in perhaps there, will never, there might not be a similar situation, but situations that are not unsimilar. Or dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's, uh, you know, of the, the lessons we can take away from this, one lesson, one very important lesson is that Canada has the ability, it has the, you know, whether it's the IT infrastructure or what have you, but it has the ability to respond to a refugee crisis in very short order. Uh, Canada was able to be very responsive very quickly to this refugee movement and to be able to bring people to Canada in very short order and, you know, satisfy a need that other other countries were still scrambling uh, to deal with, whether it was because refugees were simply walking across and entering their borders, or other countries like the United States or Australia were still establishing a program, setting up a system and a process. By that point, Canada was already issuing travel documents. So in the future, when you're dealing with other refugee crises, I hope that the Canadian government will take these lessons to heart. And it's not simply because Canada has a, you know, perhaps special, you know, relationship with Ukraine. Canada has a enormous number of people with Ukrainian, excuse me, Ukrainian ancestry living here, including myself for that matter. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when you're dealing with refugees from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Sudan, my hope is that the Canadian government will you know, take something from this lesson and uh, be able to move people here more quickly and integrate people here more effectively. You know, one of the the concerns that I had is that Canada, after having such a rapid response and such a generous program in Ukraine, when a similar situation, a really catastrophic and brutal war broke out in Sudan, the program that was created for Sudanese refugees 
was a very pale shadow, a very pale right. image of what existed for Ukrainians. And it's, you know, it's hard not to look at people from, di- or, you know, programs for people from different countries and wonder what is motivating these, uh, these distinctions. Uh, it's, you know, as a, as a Canadian, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating yeah. to see. Certainly a question for those who make these decisions. Joel, as always, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We spoke about uh, the visa program, the emergency visa program that Canada had for Ukrainians fleeing the war in their country in the last half hour. This half hour, we're going to talk about a big development today uh, as far as it comes, as far as food exports from Ukraine are concerned. And of course, Ukraine's often been considered the breadbasket of Europe, right? Their uh, grains go all over the world. They certainly are, have a huge impact in places such as the Middle East and in Africa. The war is obviously throwing a lot of that into doubt. But there was this war deal in place uh, that allowed grain to flow from Ukraine to countries in Africa and the Middle East and Asia and so forth uh, through the Black Sea, right? Um, Russia was part of that deal. Well, today Russia announced that they were halting the deal. No more. They notified the UN, Turkey and Ukraine, the other parties to this, that they will not not renew the deal. Um, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said the agreements had reached a de facto end on Monday. Of course, as I was mentioning, uh, let cargo ships pass through the Black Sea from several ports, including uh, the big one in Odessa. Moscow said it would return to the agreement if its conditions were met. Of course, people are saying, listen, you can't play... You can't play diplomacy with food, right? This is, you know, people will starve if you don't allow this stuff uh, to be exported. So the head of the UN today, Antonio Guterres, was saying the end of the deal means starving people around the world will not get the grain they need and others will pay higher prices. Hundreds of millions of people face hunger and consumers are confronting a global cost of living crisis and they will pay the price. Ultimately, participation in these agreements is a choice. But struggling people everywhere and developing countries don't have a choice. Right, Guterres says the UN will keep working to try to keep that flow of grain going. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky says he wants to keep it going even without Russian cooperation. Uh, Meantime, USAID Administrator Samantha Power says she's very concerned about the cost of food going back up everywhere. Every month since the Black Sea Grain Initiative has been operable, you have seen a steady decrease in cereal prices uh, around the world. And that is not a coincidence. Well, joining me now with more on this is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Ambassador Ray, thank you so much. Welcome back. Thank you, Ben. Good to be with you. I was reading some of what you had to say on social media, but your initial reaction to this move today by Russia to stop, not to not continue this deal. Well, I think there's an open question. I mean, whether there's a step in a in a game of poker for the Russians or whether this is a, a final decision on their part. This mismove will be um, will be seen very negatively by many, many countries. And th- this initiative, which allowed certain foodstuffs to leave Ukraine and also to an extent Russia uh, without getting bombed by um, Russian ships in the Black Sea, had a had a had a stabilizing impact on prices and on supply, and everybody knows that the UN knows that the the UN people who were involved in negotiating this are very much involved in the in the humanitarian relief side of things. So if the Russians think that that this this is going to go well for them, their popularity or their their uh, their position in the world, I think they're sadly mistaken. 
and uh, that that will become clear, I think, in the days ahead. It may be that it's a bargaining tool by the Russians to try to get more concessions out of out of different e whether that's part of what we're talking about. It's not entirely clear, but what we do know is that um, the the as a, as an announcement, it's it's terrible news um, for the world's poorest people, and the Russians know that. Yeah, in the conversation, I know that that the issue of the ongoing war in Ukraine has not been universally seen as, I mean, not been universally universally taken the same way in certain parts of the world as it has perhaps in others. But the, on this issue, it feels like UN members are relatively united that uh, that these exports need to continue because it is their countries, regardless of how neutral they want to remain on the overall question of the war, the impacts of the war on their streets uh, is something quite different. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what we're going to see now is a tremendous propaganda effort by the Russians um, globally, but also directed at a number of countries, number of African and Middle Eastern countries, to try to persuade them that that uh, this is uh, something that Russia is being forced on Russia because of the unreasonable nature of uh, the way in which the West uh, has responded to uh, to Russian aggression. Uh, that's not a new propaganda war. That's uh, that's been the war from the very beginning. You know, the West made us do it. We we didn't want to do this. We didn't want to invade Ukraine. Uh, we were forced into it. Um, and there are many really badly informed and frankly, I think in many cases, badly motivated comments from people in in the West saying much the same thing that this is not this is not Russia's fault. But, but the reality of the situation is Russia has invaded Ukraine. And the second thing is, is that Russia is, is refusing to allow vital food supplies to leave the port of Odessa without their, those ships being blown up. Uh, that there's a blockade on Odessa. And not just a blockade, there's also been a series of night bombings uh, by the Russians against Odessa, which is the, the last major port that remains open on the Ukrainian side of the Black Sea. And let's not forget, the Black Sea is not a, a private Russian lake. It's an, it's an open piece of water. And the Russians have been trying to turn it into their private property over the last 20 years. And it, it's, not, it's not right. And what they're doing is simply has no, has no merit to it. It's all about being an aggressor and attempting to reestablish an imperial position. And you've mentioned this as well, that, that foodstuffs in general are not a legitimate military target. Of course not. But I mean, what do you find? We find that the Russians are mining vast acres, acreage in, in Ukraine. Uh, they're, they're turning many, very many hugely important uh, Ukrainian farms into, into war zones. Um, and they're... Uh, preventing the export of vital food supplies to the rest of the world. I mean, there are many countries that have relied exclusively on Ukrainian and Russian exports for uh, for decades. And that's what's being affected by the way in which the Russians have decided to conduct this war. 
Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, is with us this half hour. We're talking about Russia's decision today to halt a wartime deal that allows grain to flow from Ukraine, the port of Odessa specifically, out into the rest of the world. It is an agreement that was reached mainly between uh, Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations. Russia, of course, uh, has interests in the Black Sea, so they're part of this as well. Ambassador Ray, when you look at the responses, clearly what Russia wants here is relaxing of sanctions. I mean, that seems to be what their, at least what their initial negotiating position is. Um, what's your what's your reaction to that that seems like a that seems like a bad idea well i don't think that the world's poorest people should be should be used as hostages in this in in this effort by russia to to reduce the impact of sanctions i i just think that's that's a terrible thing i mean it's a terrible tactic i really do believe and i mean i think there'll be lots of parties involved I mean, first of all the turks have have a significant financial stake in allowing the, the the movement of this food to take place because in many cases turkey is the entrepot where the food is traded and moved around so there's a, an enormous stake turkey has in in maintaining this commercial agricultural trade which russia is trying to stop i i think that that turkey will uh, have some things to say to putin about what should be done there will be lots of back channel discussions about what exactly russia's trying to do when how it, how it hopes to behave but it, it it's it's very risky to to sort of try to run the blockade as some people have suggested and say well let's just ignore the blockade and pretend it isn't there i mean that's that's your playing with human life there and that's not not a very smart move i think the secretary general has done an extraordinary job in trying to keep the port open and in trying to keep traffic flowing um and the russians have have basically have what they have done is entirely unilateral this is not uh, you know this is just a, this is just their unilateral decision that we are all forced being forced to to deal with in whatever way we can you're right there has been comment today that perhaps because this is a trilateral format between the un ukraine and turkey that you could simply continue with these shipments and ignore russia as you pointed out uh, the you know the black sea is not their not all their territorial waters this belongs to other people as well but you don't think that's that's necessarily a good idea you think that might be uh that might put that might put innocence in harm way harm's way as well well it's a question of what you know what kind of a risk are you ready to run and and it's not that's not that's not that's not a call that that, that, that i'm in a position to, no. to recommend one way or the other but i i do think that there are ways in which R russia in a variety of ways is escalating this conflict on a and always on a unilateral basis and uh, they the, the, the more they do um, the more they're committing um, obvious crimes of war. I mean, it, to use food in this way uh, in the middle of a conflict is is a war crime. Um, and, and using attempts to starve out or punish people in that way is a, is a war crime. So I, I mean, I I don't think it's something that the world can can accede to. Um, and I think there is going to have to be a, a a much broader strategy in place to ensure uh, that there's uh, freedom of movement on the Black Sea. I mean, I think it's it's critically important. We relied on Russia doing it by means of an agreement. If they're not prepared to do it by means of an agreement, um, we, we shall all have to think about what else can be done to ensure that there is freedom of movement on the Black Sea, which is what there should be.
What does that look like behind the scenes at the UN for you? Obviously, a lot of these negotiations can go on where you are. That's where a lot of these conversations happen. Uh, what will you be looking to achieve then in the coming days and weeks? Well, I mean, frankly, a lot of what we try to do here is just is just listen, have talks with all the parties, and and have conversations that that give give one a clear sense of what exactly is is on the table. We don't just do it here in New York. I mean, obviously, we're exchanging information uh, with our missions in in uh, in Turkey, our missions in Russia, our missions in Ukraine, uh, with our representatives who are talking to people at OCHA with uh, our ambassador in Rome, who's also the ambassador to the Food and Agricultural Organization. There are a lot of interests involved here in trying to, to, to move to a conversation. There are also, if you like, mediation groups around the world that have been involved in these discussions over the last year. So we're seeking to debrief with them and get a better sense of what they think is, is really happening and what is really possible. So there's lots of ways in which we exchange information um, and do the best we can to inform our own governments as to what what more can be done and how we would go about uh, doing it. And those discussions are ongoing as uh, as we speak. You know, we first spoke, I think, back when nearly, you know, just in the weeks after this invasion began. Here we are more than 500 days later. What's your assessment then of how, how things have been, uh, from the UN point of view, the ability of the organization to try to figure out some kind of resolution to this conflict, if such a word can be used to describe what's going on in Ukraine right now? I think the the UN is, is uh, very much involved on the humanitarian side. Um, that's really where... Uh, we, the UN as an organization, has been focusing its efforts. Um, th- there were, you know, it was close to 10 million people displaced in, in Ukraine, most of them internally, many of them outside the country. Uh, we've seen extraordinary damage, getting food to people, getting housing for people, uh, making sure people are able to withstand the impact of the Russian bombardment and deal with the humanitarian consequences of that. This is an enormously consequential and difficult humanitarian crisis. I think the UN itself is has some obviously is is listening to what people are telling them. Both the UN has relationships in Moscow and has relationships in Kiev, as we do as Canadians. We have a mission in Moscow and we have a mission in Kiev. So we're listening to all sides. We know what they're saying to us. I think the 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 sense among NATO countries is that the best way we can help bring this war to a close is by assisting Ukraine as much as we can to bring it to a close. Well, Ambassador Ray, as always, thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Uh, the Governor General, you may have seen this late last week. More came out came out about it over the weekend. The Governor General is back uh, under the microscope uh, over spending on international trips, especially a bill racked up by Rideau Hall uh, during a particular overseas visit last year. Documents obtained by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation show Mary Simon's trip to Iceland last fall cost about $298,000, including get this, some $71,000 in limo costs. Limo costs. Now, I don't know if you've seen Reykjavik on a map, the capital where this was taking place. It's not a big place. It's definitely not a big place. So people are like, why would you spend that much money 
on limousine costs, 71 grand, uh, despite the fact that a lot of the programming, I, I gather, was taking place about 500 meters from where the governor general was staying. Um, they were there in Iceland with the entourage to attend last year's Arctic Circle Assembly, uh, described by Rito Hall as a means to demonstrate Canada's leadership in the Arctic. Now, it's not the first time uh, the governor general's spending on international visits has been called into question. Uh, her first overseas trip back in October 2021 to attend the Frankfurt Book Fair somehow cost about 700 grand. An eight-day trip to Dubai racked up $100,000 in flight catering. Uh, the Department of National Defense, which operates the flights uh, carrying the GG and the Prime Minister on those visits uh, after that sort of banned frills, like in-flight flowers. Apparently on that GG trip, they spent something like 400 euro on lemons and limes. Now, keep in mind, these are not all the Governor General's decisions. She does, these are not line items that are delivered to her for approval. But She's meant to have, and you know, she's relatively new in the position. She's meant to have people at Rideau Hall around that sort of pay attention to this stuff or in foreign embassies, whatever it may be, you'd think someone is going to pay attention to where this money is being spent. We could go into a tirade about taxpayers' dollars and so on, and I think lots of people will do that for you. I think what I was really curious about here is who's supposed to be minding the store? Who is supposed to be making sure this doesn't happen? Because clearly, it's it's you know I've I've covered governor general's trips in the past. I've been on governor general's trip in the past as a correspondent. It's not like the David Johnstons and 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 the Michael Jeans and the Mary Simons of the world sort of go out to recklessly drop taxpayers' money. That's never, I think, the intention. But I think through just. Well, I, I don't really – I would love to find out. So that's why we went to find out who makes these decisions and why do they keep landing in hot water like this when they know – they must know that someone is going to look this up and get the details of the spending on these trips. Before you spend $71,000 on limousines in Reykjavik, which is a walkable city if there ever was one, wouldn't you think twice about, hey, wait, maybe that's a bad idea. Who's supposed to say that? Well, to help us figure it out is Barbara Messamore. She's a professor in the history department at the University of the Fraser Valley in, in BC and a vice president and fellow at the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada. Barbara, thank you. Nice to be with you. These spending scandals, I mean, they come up quite often. They seem to have been uh, slightly more prevalent with uh, the latest governor general. What do you make? What do you make of this one? This one is, uh, again, you just sort of scratch your head and think the optics. I mean, please, the optics. Yes. Someone's going to someone's going <laughs> to FOI this and uh, someone's going to talk about it. So pay attention. Yeah, well, you're certainly right. They're they're endemic. It, it's constant. And um, yeah, you do. You do kind of wonder what. Uh, <laughs> what goes through people's minds in some of these decisions. I think one thing that that I think is really important about this is that the governor general herself is not the one making these arrangements and choosing, um, you know, what's going to be done. I mean, the, the trips themselves are always done at the instance of, of Canada's government and um and so, you know, the, the arrangements are typically made by the uh, Department of Defense, by Global Affairs, this sort of thing. Um, you know, and obviously they confer with the governor general's office, but it's still in in many cases, the kinds of expenses we're looking at are just indefensible. You know, they're not really things that ought to have happened. And and unfortunately, the, the governor general who can't by tradition defend herself, even against baseless criticism, has been left to um, to often do that. There's that association. I, I, you know, just looking through some of the news stories over the past year, for example, 
Um, I see one that uh, in the Western Standard back in the spring that said, you know, she isn't royalty and uh, her lavish spending on junkets and fancy meals and fine wines, you know. So this kind of thing um, is terrible. And and um, the governor general did um, attempt a sort of defense, which frankly, I think was perhaps not the wisest course, uh, you know, defending, for example, some of the... Uh, meals that were offered by catering saying they're pretty much like airline meals and the way they were portrayed in the media was pretty unfair i thought and yes that's true <laughs> but i think yeah. that would be better left unsaid the fact that the the meals were like airline meals is kind of beside the point i think the the real point is the cost of course and 526 dollars for lemons and limes and things i mean this just is not defensible. No, it's a head scratcher. Although, you know, the Queen, I think, uh, taught us all well that the best defense when it comes to the spending issues is just not to say anything, right? I mean, I, I know we can yeah. all make up our own minds about whether or not that's extravagant. And I think a lot of us will think it absolutely is. It always reminds me, though, you know, those who work around or the entourages, whether it be the government, whether it be the people within Rideau Hall who are around the governor general, they must be able to look at this and think, oh, wait a second, do not spend you know, $1,000 on lemons and limes. I don't care what you have to do. I don't want to see that pop up in, in the National Post in, two, in a month and a half, right? Yes, I'm just right, always right. surprised at how little awareness, how little self-awareness there seems to be sometimes within that whole system. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, the fact that it is a system that you have so many moving parts to this, you have different individuals in different bureaucracies and different uh, departments of government making decisions. And maybe, you know, uh, what's needed is a closer scrutiny to the big picture. I mean, I think about the most recent criticism, the $71,000 for the ice limo luxury travel, you know, the, in, Iceland, in, the Icelandic the limo Iceland yeah, trip, in, in, a country, yes. in a country that's about the, about the size of you know, the palm of your hand yeah yes and in fact many of the distances were like half a kilometer away and people are thinking why not just walk it right but yeah. but um you know i mean this was uh what in october of 2022 and um there was um a uh standing committee on government operations and estimates um report done an investigation of sorts in december 2022 uh, to look at some of these questions. And, um, you know, in that case, this was after the fact, right? So the, the expenses that are now being raised were, were um, I guess, belatedly coming under scrutiny a couple months after the the event. And, and you know, some of the recommendations that came out of that, I, you know, as you said, kind of a head scratcher that you, you look at this and you think, well, eliminating newspapers on the flights not going to do it right no. <laughs> we're, we're, you know this is this is a bigger picture and yeah. uh, i just do think though it's important that um that we separate the function of the governor general and the role of the crown from uh the people making these decisions and and in no case is mary simon herself responsible i i don't think um there ought to even be an attempt uh, by right. the governor general to defend these things it was a little bit different uh, with the previous governor general julie payette where there were some obvious some decisions that she was making that were having some real implications on on budget within the governor general's office uh in this one i mean mary simon again has kind of come into this with with i, I imagine still learning on the job uh and then facing these kind of these, this barrage of, I mean, justifiable questions about who's making these decisions and who is it that can actually, where where is the sober second thought here saying, 
don't spend that. Yeah, you know, and as you say, completely justifiable. I mean, I think uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and the, the uh, access to information, this is a good thing. You know, I'm a taxpayer too, and nobody wants to see $71,000 spent needlessly. And uh, and so that's good. I, you know, I do think that the Governor General herself strikes me as a very down-to-earth person who has a great deal to bring to the role. And uh, I think it's unfortunate that she's being somehow targeted as, uh, you know, assuming the mantle of royalty somehow. It's not about that. It's not about her making decisions to uh, spend extravagantly. Right. At the same time, it does. um, I mean, I think a lot of us sort of can conflate all of it as one big whole. Right. And then, Mm. you know, the figurehead is the figurehead. So whoever's at the top of the chain, but the governor general ultimately I, I don't believe has sort of ministerial responsibility. It's not, I mean, she might have some say in what goes on, but uh, you're right. I don't, I don't think ultimately that it's up to her to go through every line item and say, how much did we spend on wine for this trip? Right. Yeah, certainly that's true. I mean, you know, that um, <laughs> these trips are, are not made at the governor general's own initiative. I think it's also true to say that um, those who do more, will spend more. And I, you know, think back uh, 20 odd years ago to Adrian Clarkson's right. term of office, very speaking, active governor speaking general. Of, and speaking of getting into trouble over spending money as well, right? Yes. And and again, the, the same sort of criticisms leveled about, you know, this this sort of regal entourage that accompanied her and, and whatnot. I mean, you know, and some of the media coverage was terrible and, and frankly unfair. And, um, you know, I think that... Uh, People have to recognize that that by tradition, the governor general is not going to personally defend herself. And so, you know, I understand um, uh, Mary Simon saying that some of the portrayal in the media was unfair. Well, yes, I think that's true. But at the same time, that ought not to be said, I think. Barbara Messamore is with us this half hour. She's a professor in the history department at the University of the Fraser Valley here in BC and a VP and fellow at the Institute of the Study of the Crown in Canada. We're talking about the latest spending scandal to descend on Rideau Hall. The governor general found to have, or at least the governor general's office or or, or broadly found to have spent uh, $71,000 on limos during a four-day visit to Iceland last fall. If you're scratching your head because you think, wait a second, Reykjavik's not a very big place. You're right. Uh, a lot of the venues that were being, that were these these events were being held were very close to the hotel, the quite nice hotel where the governor general was staying. Now, we don't expect the governor general to, you know, sleep in a tent or take the bus, right? We don't. But at the same time, we expect some austerity here. Um, Barbara, it always reminds me of those stories about the role of the monarchy and how the how a society views it and is directly attached to how much money that they're, we're comfortable watching them spend. And I think of sort of Scandinavia, where you often read stories about the prince who has to pay for his own parking and so on. I feel like the changing of attitudes towards the institution and now with King Charles in place has also meant that we're a little less tolerant for these stories as well. I mean, we're never particularly tolerant, but right now mm-hmm. nerves are frayed when it comes to sort of examples of big spending by uh, by the crown in Canada. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, you're you're very right that that we do expect the office to have a certain dignity attached to it, and uh, the uh, governor general is our resident head of state representing the crown. Of course, the king is our is our head of state, and it's important that office be represented with some dignity. And and of course, the governor general is undertaking these trips at the request of the the prime minister's office. A, a lot of the arrangements made by Global Affairs by the Department of 
national defense, this sort of thing. So, you know, some of it, uh, of course, isn't really in the hands of the office of the governor general, much less the governor general herself. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we live in a more democratic age and people are struggling and people sort of look at these um, things that suggest a sense of entitlement. And there's there's understandable resentment, I think, Um that most taxpayers would probably agree that there's going to be costs associated with any head of state, no matter what that looks like, you know, whether it's a uh, an appointed individual or whether you have an elected president like Ireland or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, people want them to be sensible in in how these decisions are made. And, and some of them, um, some of the expenses just simply have not been defensible. You know, when I think back in the past, we used to back in the 19th century, a lot of my research has, has focused on that. And uh, we would appoint British aristocrats to come and preside over us. As yeah, Lord, Lord, Lord over us, literally. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 And and they, in fact, often had to pick up the tab for their own expenses. They were paid a, what seemed like in the in the era of handsome salary. And yet they complained that they were required to spend a lot of money over and above that. There was this kind of sense of noblesse oblige, you know, that uh, and it was some of it was kind of funny. You look at uh, correspondence. And we see um, almost the audacity, I guess, of some of the expectations layered on these people. I, I saw one where I believe Lord Dufferin in the 1870s, where somebody, uh, some organization sent him their raffle tickets unsolicited and said, if your means don't permit you to accept all of these, um, kindly uh, appeal to your friends on our behalf. <laughs> you know, and he's expected to, to shell out and demands for charity and things like this. So, you know, wow. I mean, we've we've come a long way since then, and uh, the governor general's not expected by any means to to pay her own expenses. Yeah, but, uh, I guess yeah. that's part of it is that the perks are seen to be so so big, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 the understanding of the role is perhaps you know not great. Uh, that mm-hmm. we look at it, we simply look at it as 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 basically you know, feeding in the trough, right? I uh-huh. mean, that that's what it boils down to. Uh, not necessarily fair, but maybe worth reconsidering exactly how much taxpayers should be expected to spend on this institution. Yeah, it can be it can be hard to get it right, and I think these are instances where they've clearly got it wrong. You know, where where the expenses are are just indefensible on any on any score. You know, it's important to get also that uh, having a representative head of state, whether or not it's attached to the monarchy in Britain is uh, it's never going to be free. There's always going to be costs associated with that. And uh, our system is organized around the crown. Um, and people typically only pay attention to that when there's any sort of crisis. You know, it's not something that uh, that we have to think about most of the time. Most of the time, government formation is, a, is just simply a formality. You know, we have a few cases where that's not so, um, but these sort of things are very rare. And, um, you know, people have used the example of a fire extinguisher. You know, it's it's there, it's conspicuous, it's brightly colored, but we almost never use it. Yeah, and, we just don't and, want it to be gold-plated. That's, yeah, that's, fair, that's, that's, fair that's, enough. Yeah. Therein lies the issue. So, so, yeah, I mean, the constitutional function's really important, but it's something that we rarely have to resort to. And most of the duties are, of course, ceremonial ones that I would argue are important, too. But we want to be careful about spending surrounding those those um functions 
Well, Barbara, thank you so much for your insight on this. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. The selfie. It's hardly a new thing. There must be millions of them taken every minute out there around the world. I was wondering where they all went. But the eagerness to put yourself in the middle of the action for your little biopic um, can have some real-life consequences, we found out over the weekend, again, from injury to insult. Uh, the Tour de France, for instance, that legendary cycling race, was upended uh, over the weekend when a fan, cell phone firmly in hand, managed to touch American rider Sepp Kuss, causing him to fall and several others to collide with him and fall as well. It's the front rider goes down and he takes out one, two, three, four, five, at least ten riders and maybe more there going down in that crash. Spectator in the white hat. Looking like filming up the road, not looking at the riders coming towards him. It's like the cell phone is out and yes. when it comes back in, just right onto the arm and handlebars of Nathan Van Hoyadonk taking multiple riders down there oh wow only a few riders getting through safely but wow see injury insult country singer miranda lambert halted her show in mid-song in las vegas on saturday after fans were busy snapping selfies where she thought they should be at least trying to listen to her music i'm gonna stop right here for a sec danny i'm sorry Yeah, you get the hint. Uh, a, a listener says Adele apparently did the same thing with a selfie taker. Uh, you know, really, do you have to document your whole life when you're going to look back at that moment, says one listener, and I agree. So why do people need constant reminding of the dangers and disrespect that selfie taking can lead to? We thought we would ask Annabelle Kwan Hassa joins me now. She's a professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies as well as Sociology at Western University. Annabelle, thank you. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Ben. This this is not a new conversation. We know this. This has been going on for quite a while. But you know, the advent of the selfie has created this whole sort of uh, environment around the dangers of the selfie. We've seen reminders of it again this weekend. But but just a bit about the origins of this. How far back do these stories go? Because it feels like they've been around for a while now. Well, to be honest, Ben, I would say that as soon as the idea of the selfie, you know, came about when social media started. You know, 2004, 2005, we started seeing the first stories pop up. I mean, the sad reality is that the numbers, you know, the, the number of people that die annually globally, that is the worrisome statistic, seeing the increase we're seeing. So it is worrisome. Yeah, I mean, one would think that the etiquettes around it these days would be so clear cut. And yet, be, having been a long time, you know, reporter uh, out in the field, I know what frenzy is when some of the when people want to get a picture of something, they tend to forget everything. And it's especially so for those who may not be, you know, may not have as much experience with it or know some of the ways of looking out for yourself. But it feels like there's this sort of desire now to get images of things, even if you put yourself right in the middle of something very, very unpleasant. Oh, no, absolutely. Ben. And I think what research has shown, so that is the one good thing is that we, we now have over a decade of research here. So we, we know quite a bit about, you know, uh, what are some of the factors, what are some of the risks, and there has been some intervention. So, I mean, one thing is we know it's often, you know, travelers, you know, it's people kind of on an adventure. And I think it, it is in that context that they feel, 
you know, that they're more willing to take risks. The other core factor here, as you mentioned, is the experience. So we, we do see in a lot of our research that, um, unfortunately, it is often young people and often males um, who are the ones who are more willing to take risks. And so as a result, can also get, you know, are more likely to just get injured. Yeah, we saw it certainly this weekend. Someone stepped out into the middle of the Tour de France to take a picture of themselves and caused a, a fairly significant pileup and people got injured. I mean, it, it almost boggles the mind how, how, how um, I'm trying to use a polite term, it almost boggles the mind how, how careless people can be with these things. Um, and yet, I gather the problem is when they do work, people like them, right? They put them up on social media and people enjoy them. There, there is kind of a, um, a reinforcement of the behavior once people post these things online. Sadly, there is. I mean, uh, we see it, you know, a lot in terms of this um, notion of what we call the attention economy. So when you're on social media, you know, information moves very fast. And whether it's TikTok or Instagram, it's very visually based. And, you know, pictures are coming up and uh, people do care about um, how their pictures are received, you know, by their audiences. And each audience is different. So Influencers obviously have large audiences. So, you know, they're very eager for a lot of engagement. But, you know, even everyday users of social media have, you know, smaller audiences, friends, family, and uh, they want that attention. So people will often post, you know, um, a, an image or, you know, uh, create, a, you know, like a more elaborate post. And they will follow that post, the history of the post and see, you know, in, in, in how much time can I get how many likes and how many you know, comments and so on. What kinds of comments am I getting? So really that, as you said, you know, that kind of reinforcement and positive reinforcement in particular will then lead to a loop effect because the more you get the positive enforcement for, you know, more risky pictures perhaps or, you know, or beautiful, the, whatever way you want to look at it, you know, the more it reinforces that idea that having, you know, a different, a unique angle um, will, will lead to greater what we call engagement. What does the research say about then, I, I suppose everyone has done it at some point in time, taken a picture of themselves, or maybe they shouldn't have or not thought enough about what they were doing. Maybe not. <laughs> but it, what, what did you hear back when you were talking to people about, about the motivation behind it, whether why people take, I mean, we've seen people, unfortunately, tragically fall to their deaths, taking pictures on the edge of cliffs. Uh, we've seen accidents like the ones this weekend. We've seen people being criticized publicly for, you know, taking selfies in an inappropriate places. even politicians. I think back to Barack Obama and others at uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, memorial service. I mean, this is, everyone seems to be guilty of it. Yeah, no, absolutely, Ben. And I think what's interesting when you look at the risk-taking, you know, literature and what we know about it is that there's kind of this idea that you have two components that are pulling at each other. Um, one component is kind of the positive, you know, so what will happen if it works out, you know, what what are, you know, what is the attention you'll get, the likes and so on. And the other part is what is the potential negative outcome? And unfortunately, when we look at risk taking, um, often people tend to kind of feel that they can control the negative outcome. So I think, you know, your example of the Tour de France is a really good one because, you know, the person taking the selfie in the moment, they, they're like, oh, I, I got this, right? I, I, I'm in control. There's not going to be a negative outcome. But the reality is that often um, that assessment of the real risk, that, that they're not really doing a good job with that assessment. And uh, so as a result, we see that, you know, risk taking really goes wrong. 
Annabelle Kwan Haas is with us this half hour. She's with Western University. We're talking about the perils of selfies. Again, this weekend, there have been there's more evidence of people either angering uh, performance artists by taking selfies at the concert, or in this case, causing a quite a pileup at the Tour de France by clipping a rider while taking a basically stepping out into the race and taking a selfie right as the riders were going by and causing a huge pileup. What are some of the obvious ones that I mean, you've looked into this, you know what the research says. What are some of the clear and obvious things you should be thinking about. I mean, it seems so basic, but obviously people need a reminder. No, absolutely, Ben. And um, it's interesting you asked that question because things have changed a lot, I would say, just in the past year or two. So at the beginning, I think the reaction was when, you know, when we saw people kind of tragically, uh, you know, ending their life through a selfie, it, it was often, you know, individually blamed. So it would be, you know, we would say, well, why would somebody do this? Or, People shouldn't take these kinds of risks or people should know better. But a lot of the research in in the recent past, especially coming out of Australia, actually, because they've really had to deal with a lot of accidents related to tourism and and young people taking risks during selfie taking. That work has really shifted the perspective. And now they're talking more and more about viewing this as a public health hazard. And and I think this is a really important, you know, kind of shift in how we look at this because it moves away from, you know, blaming the individual, which is not really helpful and, you know, creating guidelines that people don't follow to really looking at it at a, at a kind of more societal level where we kind of approach it similar to the way we've approached, let's say, wearing bike helmets or wearing seat belts in cars, which is this is a public health problem that affects our public health system. And in Canada in particular, you know, where our system right now, emergency rooms are overflowing. This is not an individual decision, but rather this is something that affects all of us. So I think that approach is important and hopefully, you know, through more education, more synergy, and and even using the apps themselves as reminders of the risks. I think all of these together, you know, creates a new kind of policy framework here. Yeah, I never would have thought we had reached the limits of we sort of reached up to into into like bike helmets and things that actually protect you from yourself. But in other words, what you're saying is that we we kind of need to be protected from our from ourselves when it comes literally res- protected from our selfies uh, in this in this case. Absolutely, Ben. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that people react well when they're reminded of the danger. And one really good example of that, again, coming out of Australia, just because a lot of the more recent work comes from there is, you know, figure eight pools in New South Wales. So a beautiful spot. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures. I'd love to go myself one day. But, you know, when you look at it, it looks tranquil, beautiful. And a lot of people love, you know, taking uh, selfies in this kind of environment. Unfortunately, what a lot of tourists and visitors don't know is that, you know, there's sudden a big what they call freak waves. And, you know, people have unfortunately died because of this, you know, uh, natural danger. So one of the things that they've done is they've created, you know, information sites, websites, apps, and so on. They will actually warn people as they approach the location. So a pop-up will come up and will say, you know, today um, the you know the risk is low or the risk is high. And I think this kind of feedback to individuals really helps people assess the risk, the real risk, because the problem sometimes is that when you look at a cliff or you know you maybe look watching the Tour de France, it's really difficult to assess you know that negative outcome. You know how likely is it that something negative will happen? And I think that's where the policy is trying to move into and helping people make the right decision. 
I guess that that now means, I mean, I've seen signs in some place. I'm trying to remember where that say, you know, watch out, watch out. I think it was in Hawaii at a volcano. I, I believe, I believe I may be wrong there, but we start, we're starting to see a recognition that, uh, that this is so commonplace that people kind of need to be protected against themselves as well. Is that the kind of thing that we need? Do we need sort of signs? You were mentioning it, signs and warnings and just making people, since so many people take selfies, I guess we need to make it a blanket thing, right? Where it appeals to absolutely everybody so that they think twice about taking that risk. Yeah, but and I think signs, unfortunately, have turned out to be less um, relevant or, or less able to change people's behavior. They haven't been really that effective. So people look at them and I think, you know, people are willing to break rules, you know, just to get that really good selfie. So um, I think what we're seeing is much more kind of a combination of education, explaining, you know, what are the risks of selfies, starting really at younger ages, because we see that a lot of, you know, uh, the problems, really the dangerous components are in, in younger people who are much more willing to take risks. We know that in general, um, combined with more kind of informative guidelines rather than just a sign that we can, you know, easily ignore. So, yeah, I guess I guess in this sense, it, it is about it is about education. Right. I mean, that's again, this is still even though it feels like it's been around for quite a while, this is still relatively new. Right. I mean, I suppose you could always take a selfie with a with a with a instant camera or so on back in the day. But people rarely did it because it, you never knew how it would turn out. Uh, but this is relatively new. So I guess we're still adapting to it societally, even though it, sometimes you just shake your head at what people do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when, when you think of a lot of young people on social media, it is all about, you know, growing followers, you know, about getting that positive reinforcement. And sometimes it's even about a competition or a bucket list. So it is really kind of explaining what are some of the real dangers, you know, what are conditions often. I mean, that is another factor that we've seen in a lot of these instances is kind of explaining you know, what are the current weather conditions or potential dangerous situations in, in the moment, I think, rather than in general. So I think it's that kind of specificity that people are looking for in terms of being able to assess what is the current risk. I would think stepping out in the middle of a high-speed bike race might be self-evident, but I get the, I get the entire point. Adabel, thank you so much. Oh, no, thanks for having me, Ben.